And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And for those of you who have been clamoring for Jonathan's classic introduction, which we have stopped doing when we're trying to act like grown-ups because we have actual writers on with us, it's just the two of us, so we can sound like this again. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, infants on the loose. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. I just got back from a long... Uh, ten days of uh, of taping lectures about science fiction, which will become available publicly sometime next spring, I believe. Um, well, well, actually, uh, tell us for a second what actually is that project? Because you've you've mentioned it to me in passing privately, but what actually is it? What are you doing? Well, it's, it's, it's I had to ask them if if I can talk about it at all. There's an organization uh, which advertises, at least in the United States, in uh, the New York Times Book Review every week, full page ad and Time Magazine, and Newsweek, and I don't know, Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, with a product called The Great Courses. And these are, interestingly enough, very old-fashioned lectures of a professor standing around in a set um, built specifically for that course, talking about the subject. And the subject could be anything from uh, Etruscan art to uh, you know Minoan civilization to in my case, science fiction. They've done some with other people. Um, Tom Shippey did one on heroes in literature. I think Eric, Eric Rabkin of the University of Michigan did one. But what's, what fascinates me about it is that you would, and, and as a matter of fact, Neil deGrasse Tyson is doing uh, a couple of uh, courses for them. Uh, I bet he gets Rome. a better set than you got. I think he's probably getting a better set than I do. But I've got, I, I'm, I'm going to show you pictures of my set. They have Seven enormous posters, which they print out on a gigantic printer they have in house, which they're going to mail to me because they don't have any use for them afterwards. Cool, you can bring them to World it's Fantasy. We'll use them as backdrops. Well, actually, we could do that. I could, I could cart. I don't think I'll get them by then. That'd be cool. We could use them for back. We could, we, we can make this the official set of the Cood Street podcast from now on. Uh, what I wanted to get on the set was an Antikythera mechanism. You know that thing yeah. from Greece, the, but. Uh, Apparently there's only one and nobody's made replicas of it. <laughs> but the, the point about this series of lectures that interests me is that uh, because I was a, a, a dean of um, adult and continuing education for several years, and, and this is apparently true, that for all the hyper overproduced things you see on, um, uh, on Nova or on the science sci-fi channel, which actually did some kind of a history of science fiction a couple of years ago, that mostly talked to aging Star Trek actors instead of actual writers. Um, but what people seem to prefer is, is, is people giving lectures. How dull. Um, not, not, the, not the overproduced things, not lots of film clips, but they want to just have somebody straightforwardly describe whatever the topic is. And these people are enormously successful at it. Cool. So how many lectures did you actually do? There are 24 half-hour lectures. That's a lot of writing. That's a book, Gary. Uh, I, I, I counted up the amount of time and the amount of um, wordage it amounted to. That amounts to about a hundred thousand word book. And, and what kind of things? What kind of topics are you covering? I mean, is it just sort of like the golden age, or you know, John W. Campbell and going crazy in, in science fiction, or, or is it something sort of like more idiosyncratic? No, it's not, well. There, there, there are some of my idiosyncratic things, and there is the kind of standard history. One of the things that. I thought they wanted was a, like great works of science fiction, and then I thought, okay, 
We'll do a lecture on Dune. We'll do a lecture on the left hand of darkness. We'll do a lecture on the strangers. And then I thought, I don't want to talk for a half hour about Dune. I can't. I think most of what I don't want to talk for a half hour about Ender's Game, which I wouldn't have done a lecture on anyway. Um, but so, so some of it is the golden age. I talk about what I call the golden age of the magazines being the Campbell era. The golden age of the novel, I'm arguing, is the 50s, which was the argument I made with the Library of America stuff. And then I do um, some characteristic settings, cities, wastelands, planets, some characteristic icons, going back to my old book on the iconography. So we talk about aliens and robots and spaceships and artifacts and various things like that. Uh, And then we talked about, um, in the next to the last lecture, the post-2000 science fiction, the age of diversity. The next to the last lecture I had, this would be an interesting, controversial, I I hope not, um, discussion point for other people. The last three authors I talked about, just to illustrate what's happened in the last uh, ten years or so, were Nalo Hopkinson, Nnedi Okorafor, and Lavi Tidar. Okay. Those are your pick for the three most influential writers of that period. No, not the most. No, no, not the most influential writers. They represent different kinds of diversity during that period. Okay. But between the three of them represent a huge range of the diversity that science fiction has seen since 2000. Interesting. Because there is a character in science fiction. There's a growing movement in African science fiction. I have, a, I have an email yet to answer about somebody who wants to send me another anthology of African science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nettie is, as, as we keep reminding people, not African, but her parents were. She's Igbo. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and, and Lavi is... It's not just uh, an Israeli-born writer raised in the kibbutz, but he's been all over the world. He's uh, you know, living in the UK. His take on alternate history is probably the most transgressive take on alternate history of anybody writing today. I mean, nobody else has made Adolf Hitler a down-at-the-heels private eye. It's true. I mean, he may be the most sort of multinational kind of pulp science fiction writer of the modern era. Well, that's the other thing. He's interested in the pulp era. He's interested... One of the interesting things about these writers, which I think... We're going to talk about diversity, and I think we we don't use that word loosely enough. It's not just national and linguistic and ethnic and racial diversity. It's a diversity in the resources that you draw on. Sure. And it's interesting that both Nedia Korofor and Lavi Tidder have drawn on superhero comics in, yes. in, in the recent novels. And, and, and gaming. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's a lot of just, okay, we're, we're science fiction writers now, but if we want to put in something that looks a lot like the X-Men, we can do that. If we want to put in Marvel superheroes, which the uh, violent century is full of, uh, under you know, new names, you can do that. And if you want to combine alternate history science fiction with um, cyberpunk ideas, you can do that. I mean, and, and that doesn't even get into the kind of diversity represented by the influx of Scandinavian writers like Hanyu Rayanimi or Lena Krohn or uh, uh, Karen Kidbeck or Johanna Sinasalo. Let me ask you a question about this because it's interesting. I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking. Um, we talk a lot about what science fiction is for. And we talk a lot about mm-hmm. how science fiction talks about the future. And there's a lot of uh, discussion about what the future might look like, how, how we should approach talking about it, that kind of thing. When you look at writers like, well, like uh, Lavi, like Mm -hmm. um, Nnedi, like uh, Nalo, do we perhaps 
undervalue how they are talking about the future using a different approach because they're not directly extrapolating from the present day to talk about the future. They're using pop culture elements and all sorts of other items to create a story that actually talks about some of those issues, but from a different perspective. Um, I, I was with you up until you mentioned the future because I'm not sure that the superhero stuff works. I mean, in, in the case of... Um, uh, of Nettie's novel we're talking about, The Book of Phoenix, which is a yeah. really distant prequel to Who Fears Death. Uh, you, can see, you can see that future in Who Fears Death, uh, Death emerging from The Book of Phoenix. But what's interesting to me about The Book of Phoenix is the fact that it is, and I said this in the review which has already been out, it's about the radicalization of a superhero. Yeah. So, she, so she basically draws on aspects of popular culture that have nothing to do with the real future. Um, it's it, it, one, it, it, one of the most interesting titles of a movie which I've not, I probably haven't watched all the way through, although it's on HBO all the time, is X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, and that's a actually very fascinating subtitle, because I think what you're doing, uh, and I think Nettie does this, and I think LaVie does this, um, and to a lesser extent, Nala, although she does have the dystopian Toronto, is you're constructing a, few, a future which isn't supposed to be a realizable future. It's a future of a world which is sort of a mashup of our own world and all the pop culture that makes up the world. In other words, we have a future that may have superheroes in it, um, that may have mutants in it. Okay. I mean, it's, it's certainly... I have to say, I mean, when you say Days of Future Past, actually... It's both an old idea and even an old title, interestingly enough. I mean, it goes back to the uh, 60s. Um, where does it come from originally? I don't know where the original quote comes from, but the, the place I know it from is uh, the Moody Blues had an album called Days of Future Past in 1967. 67? That old, huh? So it's not, not a particularly new or novel you know, like name or even concept. No, it's not. And, and, and it's been a cliche for decades now that the... You know, the future ain't what it used to be, that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of this goes back to... Um, 67 is further back than I would have traced it. But one of the things that... Um, one of the iconic stories, and I mentioned this in the lectures because I think it's so iconic, is, is Gibson's first story, The Gernsback Continuum. Because that's exactly what it's about. It's, and I gather this film, Tomorrowland, which came and disappeared without anybody seeing it, was also about a kind of idealistic, disnified 50s version of tomorrow. Is the strength of the Tidhar and Okorafor kind of fiction that it's leached of the nostalgia that seems to be in the concept behind Days of Future Past? Because a lot of science, fiction, science fiction's approach to that area is very nostalgic. That's a good point. Um, I, think, I think that's true. I think to some extent... Uh, Neither of those writers make use of actual uh, Marvel or DC superheroes, and I'm sure they couldn't if they wanted to because of legal issues. But I think to some extent they want to use the superhero concept as a political idea rather than as a way of reclaiming childhood nostalgia. Yeah. So I think you're absolutely right. I think they're trying to leach all the sentimentality out of this that they can and, and, and leave you with a fairly political uh, work of fiction. Well, I think it'll, I mean, we need to set up to talk to, to Levy because I'd be very curious how he feels about taking the elements that he takes and uses in his fiction the way he does, because it strikes me as being very contemporary. 
you know what he does doesn't strike me as being that kind of backwards looking uh fond nostalgic kind of thing it doesn't look like he's trying to recreate pulp fiction in any kind of way it looks like he's trying to take elements build them into a new beast and use them to tell a different kind of story i think he's using the elements of pulp fiction in a in, in exactly the way you described uh and i think the part of part of the reason he's doing this is because he knows he seems to know a lot more about pulp fiction and especially israeli pulp fiction than uh, than anybody else does because he's he, he's drawn on in a man lies dreaming for example the man who lies dreaming who is a dreaming is a um, prisoner at Auschwitz based on an actual uh, Yiddish language pulp writer of the early part of the 20th century. Now he doesn't expect anybody to react to that with nostalgia, but he finds it as a useful resource. Another example. Um, which we haven't mentioned, I mentioned very briefly, is Hanu Royanyemi, who in yeah. his Quantum Thief trilogy will draw on, um, on the Quantum Thief itself, will draw on Maurice LeBlanc, you know, the mystery writer from, from the early uh, years of the century. And as we were talking um, to Aliette de Bodard on, on this very podcast, it turns out she uh, found some inspiration in uh, Maurice LeBlanc and uh, Arsene Lupin. I don't think they're using those for nostalgia value. I think they're using them because these are very interesting kinds of published resources to give a kind of, I don't know, spice or flavor or balance or texture to the novels. Just to sort of, you know, sort of branch off from this a little bit. In popular music, right, there is a feeling that the idea of the evolution of popular music is being lost to modern listeners because young people experience everything now completely at the same time. You know, it's not not surprising to have a young person listen to a song from 1956, 1985, 2012, and then go back to 1942 in one playlist. It's not particularly extraordinary. My own children mm-hmm. listen to music across a 50-year spe- spectrum with no interest particularly in that, that spectrum. Do you feel that same kind of uh, compaction is happening in science fiction when it comes to influence? Because we talk a lot about texts informing one another. We look for linear kind of evolution of these things. But I wonder if the way writers are experiencing things, and this is where it comes in with what's happening with Hanu and with Aliette, um, is, is it becoming more just a common mulch rather than an evolved timeline kind of evolution? Mulch sounds to me like a judgmental term. To I, not, I don't know, not even slightly, no. But, I mean, you, I mean, just trying to think of how you, know, how you look at the ambient culture and what's available. It is all you know, merged together, melded, mulched together. You now, know. When you were talking about, um, about uh, the musical analogy, I thought you were going to get into hip-hop and get into the whole idea of sampling. Because I think part of what's going on with these writers is a kind of sampling. Yeah. Uh, you're not necessarily... Uh, in dialogue with a specific tradition, but you're using elements of all these traditions. Sure. So I don't think that... Um, I'm, I, I'm fairly confident that Hanu um, Ryanyemi with The Quantum Thief didn't expect most readers to recognize sure. Arsene Laplan and Boy Detective and, and Maurice LeBlanc. Um, and I think that one of the reasons that, uh, that both Nettie Okorafor and... Um, Lobby Tidder have just made up their own superheroes is that they do want to avoid that appearance of illusion. They want to use the technique. They want to have the kind of power you get from that kind of a figure, but they don't want it to be nostalgic. They don't want to seem to be 
writing uh, novels about comic books. Yeah. Well, this would be interesting. We should, we should make a point of talking to Levy uh, next year about Central Station, and we can talk about this kind of stuff with him as well. To segue again slightly. Sorry, yeah? Okay, go, go ahead. We'll segue right after this, but we should at least parenthetically mention that there are a lot of other authors doing this sort of thing, too, besides the ones you mentioned. It just seems to be a... a They're the ones you have to, have to come up. Who do you have in mind, Gary? Um... I think that uh, we've 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 talked to Rachel Swirsky on the on, on the podcast. I think her short fiction draws on a lot of different traditions. I've been reading a novel by Charlie Jane Anders that seems to point in a number of different directions. There are, in other words, the idea of writing a single uh, writing against a single tradition. The idea that you're going to okay, let's all write a novel in response to. Hmm, Heinlein Starship Troopers. I don't think that sort of thing happens anymore. There's not that common element. Instead, you have, instead of a whole tradition of science fiction looking back to the new wave or looking back to cyberpunk or looking back to space opera or looking back to the new space opera, writers may be looking back to a dozen different things, some of which only a few of the readers are going to even be familiar with. So you don't think that when Anne Leckie writes Ancillary Mercy that you're seeing an evolutionary path that starts probably beforehand but goes from Starship Troopers to the Forever War to something else to uh, Ancillary Mercy. I think you're seeing part of that. I mean, I think that is that is a part of what goes into Ancillary Mercy. I don't think it's the whole... No. I don't think it explains the whole novel. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't p- attempt to suggest it. I don't think it ex- that that explains all of the Forever War, which is deliberately written no, in response doesn't. to no. Starship Troopers. Uh, or, I mean, and I, I, I think that when we talk about this evolutionary path of science fiction, when we talk about the Gernsback Continuum, even then, it's a much fuzzier beast than just simply, hmm, I read E. Doc Smith's uh, Skylark of Space. I better write something that completely responds to that in my own, in, in, my, in my novel. Like, you know, life's not that ne- as neat and tidy. Uh, inspiration isn't as sterile as that. Uh, but right. nonetheless, you can see those paths and the, the discussion, the dialogue being had. Well, and I think the other change is that you don't, you no longer have editors that are bludgeoning writers with with ideas that should better stick. To, to this tradition, the way Campbell did. No, I think you get editors bludgeoning writers to death with something else. Yeah, and that's that's a healthy sign, I think. Well, I mean, you're an ed- you get to shape the field. Not very much, Gary. At all, I'm, I'm just a, a, a side note. But well, uh, when you get, well, if you see editors at mass market publishing houses, the way they shape the field is the way they push it towards right the creation of commercial fiction rather than necessarily what we're talking about. The segue that I was going to make, and commercial fiction is probably a pretty good tie-in with this, is there you were in the wilds of Virginia. Was that where you were? Wilds of Virginia, which is in suburban Washington, D.C., actually, or something. (laughs) Okay. So there you are in the the wilds of Virginia, surrounded by Virginia ham, and you're doing your, your, your multiple lectures, standing there day after day, and you went to the movies in your spare time, Yes. I went to the movies. Uh, our friend and the friend of the podcast, uh, Karen Burnham, who lived only an hour away, uh, picked me up, and we discovered that not only was this wonderful NASA museum, this is not the Air and Space Museum in downtown D.C., this is the one out in Chantilly, Virginia, 
This is where the Enola Gay is from World War II. It's where the space shuttle Columbia is. There's a uh, there's a Concord jet in there. There's it's wonderful. It's just and there's an IMAX theater. So yep. only an hour after um, uh, Karen and I were looking at the twin of the Mars. I mean, there's, there's, it, they even got the probe, the balloon probe that was sent into the atmosphere of Venus, not the one, obviously. So we were looking at the Mars Pathfinder or its twin, uh, and then we went to see the Martian in an IMAX theater. In the Air and Space Museum, which is the best way ever to see a science fiction movie. Because, first of all, you're seeing on screen stuff that you were seeing in reality an hour earlier. Yep. Um, and did you see The Martian? I've seen The Martian. I enjoyed The Martian. I've got some significant reservations about The Martian, but I liked it a lot. I liked it quite a bit, too. And I, I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. Uh, but part of what... And I have not read the novel. I did... Uh, look at the novel. Uh, it didn't strike me as being especially gripping. It's the the, the, the novel appeared to me to have. Uh, I, sh- I, sh- I shouldn't speak about it not having finished, but it appeared to me to be a kind of. There was a great deal of Tom Clancy tech fetish in it. Well, our friend Russell Letson, who did try to read it for Locus for Review, described it memorably, and I will take this probably with me to my grave, as a tale of iron men told in wooden prose. And that probably <laughs> seems about as accurate as anything from what I hear of it. That's Though I've not read it. It's very good. Oh. Um, well, I mean, but go ahead. But anyway, so, so yes, I, the family and I went to see it. It looks fabulous. Um, I know that there was something that didn't quite work for me. It was only afterwards that I came out and it became clear to me what that was. And then other things mm-hmm. began to kind of unravel in my mind. But while I was watching it, I enjoyed it very much. Well... Uh, there, there were some things that I questioned in it, but um, compared to any other science fiction movie I've seen in the last two or three years, uh, there were they were quibbling kinds of things. It was, um, for one thing, I mean, and this has been widely publicized that no, the Martian atmosphere can't put together a yeah. a windstorm like that. But you know, basic rule of Ridley Scott movies is you have to have a windstorm. You just he just loves that. Oh, look, I mean, um, and, and uh, actually the question is interesting. Here we are, we're talking about quint- quintessentially science, science fiction film. And people, when yeah. they start nitpicking about science fiction definitions, get down to this idea, which I think came from a Theodore Sturgeon uh, quote, that uh, for, for a story to be a science fiction story, it, it should not work if you remove the science fiction element from it, right? Now... Yeah, remove the science from it. Yeah. Now, the, tr- the truth is the Martian could have been set in 1905 in the Arctic, and it would be virtually the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, there'd be one or two little sort of variations you would need to make, but that would basically be it, right? Uh, however, you know, I've got to say that I am probably a little bit more bothered by you than, than it sounds in some, with some of the scientific inaccuracy. I don't care that... Mm-hmm. The Martian sunsets are blue and not red. I figure you get dramatic kind of license. Mm. I was struck immediately while I was watching the film that I didn't believe that there wasn't more redundancy in the Martian base that was landed. I mean, every damn thing NASA puts out in the world communicates a million times, and yet mm-hmm. there's no redundant communication on their on their their base on Mars. That struck me as a little unbelievable. 
Uh, possibly. Uh, I mean, but, but if you're going to go that way, you're going to have to say, well, probably a base on Mars is not very likely either. Oh, uh, no, no, no. It, it's, 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 it's likely. It just would have been underground. Well, I mean, it more likely would have been underground. I, I suspect that's right. I think the reason for the lack of redundancy was that this was meant to look like a cutting-edge or edge-of-the-budget mission. It was meant to suggest, I suspect, in some ways, Apollo 13, uh, which was very on the edge of we can barely do this and we don't have the funds or the knowledge to, to do much redundancy. Yeah. And actually, that was the other part where it began to bother me a little, Gary, even while I was watching. One of the two or three things that bothered me while I was watching. I looked at this beautifully finished movie, right? And it's a lovely mm-hmm. film to look at. Uh, Mars looks fantastic. All of the stuff in it looks fantastic. And what I'm thinking about is I've seen the Apollo 11 capsule in the Aerospace Museum, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not beautifully finished, Gary. The stuff that goes into space, they don't sit there and make it look like a fourth-generation commercial product. It's gaffer tape and bits of pipe that have been welded in place and all this kind of stuff. So it's a little bit too slick, almost. I I had that reaction when we saw the scenes um, on board the spacecraft returning from Mars, having left them behind. uh, which, Which, by the way, was one of these odd things that happens in a movie which I call uh, a casting spoiler. A casting spoiler is when you have um, an expensive actor or actress in a role that doesn't appear to be going anywhere, and you know that they wouldn't have paid for that actor unless that <laughs> role would amount to something. So the minute, the minute that they are leaving him behind on Mars and you realize that a well-known actor like Jessica Chastain is commanding that, you know perfectly well that that ship is going to end up rescuing him because they wouldn't have had Jessica Chastain in that. Oh, look, surely you, you, you could probably guess 80% of the plot of that film within the first 15 minutes of it. Well, several people have, uh, have commented that one that's of the fine. interesting accomplishments of the film is that you really go into the film knowing how it's going to end. Yes. And nobody goes in there thinking, is he going to survive? That's just not a, a, an issue. So, But I think that's part of the skill of the filmmaking. There were things that puzzled me, like I'm... I'm not exactly sure why any Martian expedition would need to have that many hundreds of cubic yards of translucent plastic sheeting. Uh, for what? But he's got enough to build an entire uh, you know, terrarium and enough left over to, 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 to coat his spacecraft when he's blasting off. So there were things like that that were interesting. I could never figure out how he navigated all the way across uh, Mars to find the Pathfinder, and then navigated Mars again to find the other landing site. I just well, accepted, like you said. Well, yeah, you, you accept some of it, and there's little bits where you can kind of fill in. It's like, almost certainly there would have been uh, NASA satellites going o- going overhead. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the way NASA would probably approach a Mars mission, and they, they show you that, I mean, they're landing stuff for missions four years hence in the film, right? Yeah. So, uh, and, and in fact, after, they're getting ready to launch something, they'll go after the four-year the mission of the student four years. So almost certainly there are satellites going around. In fact, I think they show you there's satellites going around Mars. Mm. So you can be getting GPS information, whatever else. That's all fine. They could have given you a little bit of an inkling of that. It's like some of these quibbles they could have knocked off in passing comments without there being any real issue. The real central issue, though, and maybe this is because it's the kind of story it is, because it is Iron Maiden wooden prose, is they could have given Mark Watney, you know, the uh, Matt Damon character, a little bit more of a psychological life. I mean, there's this guy, and he's stuck on Mars for 540 days or whatever it is, 
by himself. And we barely see him get bothered by it. What's he doing every day? Isn't it driving him nuts? Isn't he depressed? Isn't he anxious? Isn't he, you know... He, he gets one scene being depressed when he's making a tape for his parents. Uh, but what I think of as... I think that's partly a weakness, but I think it's partly a strength of the movie because a movie that I saw a week earlier, Everest, which is another survival movie, was much more formulaic according to the um, uh, sort of cliches of survival and disaster movies. Everest was full of tearful housewives back home. Please, son, I, I, please, please, I love you. This sort of, it, it, it had all this sort of back-and-forth stuff. And this is a true story. And yet they made it into a melodrama that was more sentimental and in some ways less believable than The Martian was. One of the strengths of The Martian was not giving these characters much in the way of backstory. See, I, I don't know that I'm convinced. No I, no, I'm not talking about backstory. I mean, I'm just talking... Okay. I'm, not, I'm not, talking about, not talking about agonizing about uh, wives and children and tearful this and tearful that. But um, little things like, surely you could have had a couple of moments where he just is struggling. Emotionally. I mean, I, I mean, some people have said he's a little bit too two-dimensional, and yet I can completely believe that a NASA type of person who was stranded on Mars would act mostly like that. Would actually go, I have to pick myself up and get on with this because that's the kind of people that they send out. You know? exactly right. So that's totally plausible to me. But even those people have the have times when they just go, "Oh my God, for you know, I've got." I mean, initially he's sitting there, he's going, "I've got to make a plate full of potatoes and a bunch of crap last me for four years." I think there were moments like that in the film. I think one of the moments they were very small moments. One was one was making a recording to his parents, who we never see, yeah, and one was a fleeting line saying, "I ran out of ketchup seven days ago." Yeah. Which is a very emotionally affecting line, even though it's, it's, it's very trivial. You know, the one thing that I would... Well, sorry, yeah? Uh, the kind of characters... And I, I, again, I, the, the, I think Drew Goddard was the screenplay, so I'm not giving Ridley Scott too much credit for this. I am giving Matt Damon some credit. By and large, uh, there are some similarities between this film and 2001 as well. And one of the similarities which was very deliberate on Kubrick's part, was that the astronauts look two-dimensional, they seem mechanical, they just go through the motions until Kira DeLay is forced to solve a problem uh, when Hal tries to kill him. Uh, and the fl and, and there, there's a scene in 2001 where they're talking um, to their families, I think, and there just seems to be no affect there at all. Uh, and From what I've read about Kubrick, he wanted that effect. He wanted the effect that these people are technicians there's not much human depth to them at all. And I gather from what people have told me about the novel that the novel is completely like that. And that the, what, what humanity was invested in the character that Matt Damon portrays was pretty much put there by the screenplay and by his performance. Yeah, yeah. In other words, if you made a movie out of Arthur C. Clarke's The Sands of Mars, which had a vaguely similar plot from, what, 65 years ago... Um, Using Arthur C. Clarke's depth of, depth of characterization, you wouldn't have gotten much more than you got in this movie. I mean, look, it's no there's no doubt it's the best 1950s science fiction film ever made. Uh, I was going to argue it's one of the best Heinlein science fiction films ever made. Effectively the same thing. Is, hmm? Effectively the same thing. Well, so, effectively, to the extent that it's a celebration of competence. It's yeah. one of the people I saw, and this may have been on Twitter or Facebook or just in an email I got... That, that he has to MacGyver his way back to Earth. Yeah. And 
that's exactly what it is. It's 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 putting together. Let's put together a spaceship with duct tape and plastic sheeting. Yeah, and a lot of it. I mean, look. Probably its greatest strength as well is it still sits on. It feels most of the way through that it sits on this side of plausibility, and, mm-hmm. and and that's more important than scientific accuracy for a story anyway. Though I think there's a few elements about the conclusion or you know, the, the, the 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 you know the the end of the film that I wouldn't totally spoil by going into how it happens. But I'm not entirely convinced about some of the denouement, shall we say. Mm-hmm. There are little bits of it where you're sort of going. Yeah, I don't think that's probably right, but I can see why you did it because it makes for good cinema, and good cinema is a forgivable crime. I mean, come on, this is not a not a lecture in physics. This is here's two and a half hours of entertainment, mm-hmm. and it, it, it for, on that level, it's very very good. And well, I, the, the thing that it does, which I think is it, is, it, it walks a fine line, which is what. A good hard science fiction movie would do, and this is this is one of the few hard science fiction movies we've seen, and that it plays as much as it can within that up. But on the one hand, it it doesn't uh, sentimentalize the situation by by going back to the uh, tragic family at home. You don't see his parents. You don't see his wife if he has one. You don't see any of the people back on Earth except NASA personnel trying to solve the problem. So on the one hand, it it it, it stops short of doing that. On the other hand, it stops short of doing what Hollywood seems to have uh, an absolute addiction to, where you have a reasonably good hard science fiction plot which has to explode into some kind of mystical transcendence at the end that makes no sense at all. In well, other the, words, the sort of thing that uh, Interstellar did. Well, do you think this film is influenced by gravity? I don't think so at all. Okay. I think gravity was... Uh, Largely a set of technical problems. I think Quaron wanted to see how long a take he could get, and he, he wanted to see what he could do with cameras with no up and down. It, it, it was it was a technically brilliant film that was as hard science fiction complete nonsense. Well, I mean, you could argue that this one is hard science fiction is almost complete nonsense too. Um, I think you could you could well, I mean, in the sense of this doesn't violate gravitational laws as severely as that one did. based on what they put on the screen everybody dies well yeah exactly you know i mean okay. in the martian bluntly based on what you see on the screen everybody dies because they well, never okay, explain this is, yep this is this is why I, I i describe it as as one of the few hard science fiction movies you see because the other thing that came to mind at several points during this was the favorite whipping boy of every science fiction critic now, The Cold Equations. Um, well, and in fact, uh, it's, it's, it's not dead yet because even, even in, your, in your new anthology, Meeting Infinity, Yoon Ha Lee is having a whack at The Cold yeah. Equations again and more power. Uh, well, well, the, well the, the, that's because there's a nubbin of a point in that story uh, that remains central to science fiction. Or hard science fiction. Hard science fiction likes the idea that there are implacable rules in the universe you just have to deal with. That's what that's what reminded me of the cold equations for this film. Yeah. They're both based on uh, a fairly um, realistic and sensitive revolution that, as you've said many times on this podcast, the universe wants just to kill you. It wants to blow you up. It wants to boil your eyes out. It wants to freeze you to death. It wants to do all these things. And the clever engineer has to figure out ways around that. And as I think almost everybody knows by now, uh, the, the Tom Godwin 
lore is that he sent he had three ways of saving the girl's stowaway, and Campbell rejected every one of them sure. and said, no, she has to die. Um, this movie is about a hard science fiction problem, which is insoluble, and it thinks up one solution after the other. And again, somebody who read the book, uh, I think Karen had read the book, uh, said that actually the novel has two or three more really unlikely uh, setbacks that, uh, that, that, that the movie doesn't even bother. Here's my question for Probably. a story like so this kind really, of... Mm-hmm. Sorry. Hmm? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, finish what you were saying. I was going to say, here's my, pro- my question about a, f- a story like this, whether it's The Martian or something else. If hmm. you have one hard SF cold equation requirement in your story, doesn't all of the other hard SF science actually have to stack up as well? Or can you have the rest be a little spongy? Now, in The Martian... The fact that the that the initial uh, point of start of that, that kicks off the story, and right at the very beginning, so it's not a spoiler though. We've littered this podcast mm. with spoilers. Uh, you know, the spaceship wouldn't have got blown over, right? Wouldn't have happened. Right. So none of this would have happened. Fair enough. Uh, I'm more troubled. Was more troubled when I watched it by the idea that everybody gets fried by radiation, and that's what mm. would have happened. The, the the people on the the, uh, the spaceship that come back from they would have died. You know, the most likely you know, sort of end scene that you see is everybody in a cancer ward slowly dying if they hadn't already been killed by the massive exposure to radiation. And we have no technology to address this, apparently, at the moment. So, isn't that... But, okay, but, you, but you were giving yourself uh, some leeway to say, okay, well, maybe they had, for example, the GPS satellites in orbit. Maybe they have better radiation shielding in the spacecraft. It doesn't look like any spacecraft we've really seen before. Uh, so, again, you could... Uh, you, you, you give them a certain amount of leeway that they've solved the problems that they've set up. They have there are other problems they have not set up, and they are not responsible as a, as a screenwriter or um, apparently as a novelist to solve problems that you're introducing into their scenario. <laughs> well, actually, the thing is though they're in their scenario. They may not mention them, but they're there. Well, you know, I mean, maybe I'm sensitized to this, but every time I think about. We go to the moon, we have to deal with radiation. We go to Mars, and we're on Mars. Radiation is, is your first, second, and third problem in some ways. You know, you're That's in, a, you're in a, a spaceship or whatever between Earth, Earth and Mars. Radiation, radiation, radiation. You know, that's why Stan talks about it in Aurora and whatever else. Radiation. And there's no shielding. They've got windows in the spaceship for crying out loud. Well, yeah, and that's the issue uh, that uh, Ian McDonald talks about in Luna as well, which I thought one of the more clever things in his moon colony is that the higher, the closer you are to the surface, the poorer you are because you're closer to the radiation exposure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think all that's very real, and all that stuff should be cons- should be considered in a rational way. But I go back to the point that um, these are stories, and uh, for what, for, for example, you talk about redundancy. The, 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 there's, there isn't any real way you can make the cold equations work in terms of any kind of engineering or, or, or science. All it says is that um, we're going to write a story that contrives to throw a young girl out the space. I mean, that's, that story exists to throw the young girl out. Yeah. The story of the Martian exists to get him home. Uh, so it's basically you're going to push the envelope in all sorts of ways but you're going to try to keep it more or less vaguely credible that he gets home and that the, uh, the, 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 the 
the spaceship crew members who are spending an extra 500 days in space, and you're probably right, frying their genes with radiation during that, that they're going to be all right, too. Um, but I guess one of the secrets of this, and one of the secrets when you look at even things like the moon as a harsh mistress, um, uh, with very few exceptions, hard science fiction tends to bend rules whenever it needs to. True. And I will say as well, really, uh, The Martian only pretends to be hard science fiction. I mean, it's, it doesn't make a big point. And it only of it, pretends so. to be hard science fiction. The, the, odd, the odd thing that surprised a lot of people in, in the audience when I saw it, and it, it does look terrific in IMAX, although I did not see it in 3D, is that it's a fairly funny movie. In, in, in many of its scenes, it's almost a comedy. Sure. Uh, and some of the comic um, uh, effect comes from the ingenuity. I mean, there was a... Uh, and again, I don't know how many of these illusions were there deliberately. But the scene with planting the potatoes, and this again is probably not a spoiler, but he manages to raise some potato plants, reminded me of the old film Silent Running by Douglas Trumbull, yeah. which was Trumbull's first movie as a director after he had been the special effects director on 2001, I believe, which deals with Bruce Dern in a space station where he's raising plants and... Um, and he's really fond of these plants he's raising, and when uh, it's, it's 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 just an awfully stupid movie. Um, he ends up killing the rest of the crew to save the plants, and then he does he can't figure out why the plants are dying. It's because he's he's in the orbit of Saturn. He's too far away from the sun for them to get any kind of solar radiation. This guy is supposed to be a botanist. Okay, so here we have uh, in two contrasting but somewhat similar movies. The worst botanist in the history of science fiction film in Brewster and Silent Running, and probably the best botanist in the history of science fiction film in The Martian. So in terms of botany, you've got the entire range of science fiction between <laughs> those two movies. Uh, fair enough. Okay, well, I, I would maybe wind up talking about The Martian to say this. I did enjoy it, and I do think if you know, anyone who listens to the podcast goes to see it, they almost certainly will enjoy it too. You know, I, 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 you know, I give it seven and a half coods out of ten. Um, as you say, it looks terrific. It doesn't. It doesn't blatantly insult your intelligence the way almost every other science fiction movie does at some point, and it doesn't turn into a personal vision of transcendence that doesn't make any sense. Remember yeah. the last couple of movies set on Mars were Mission to Mars, and I think that was the one with Gary Sinise, and there was another one with Mars in the title or something. Um, the, the the two movies together with um, Mars Attacks that apparently destroyed Mars movies for like a decade because they were all such flops. All of them ended with some, except for Mars Attacks, which was just a farce from the beginning. All of them ended with some kind of mystical alien presence that suddenly you have a hard science fiction story that turns into the Martian Chronicles in the end. Uh, yeah, that's never good. this did not do this. That This did not really go off the deep end in either direction. So there are imperfections in it, but um, it was a lot more restrained than I expected. And again, if we've seen Ridley Scott's last movie, Prometheus, it's an astonishing improvement. Yeah. Well, I mean, not that we're going to go into this at all, but I mean, I think there's an interesting discussion for someone to have about the changes in the director, Ridley Scott. Because the seeming auteur of Blade Runner and um, Alien has disappeared from the world to be replaced by this uh, journeyman editor who can do kind of anything, but is never 
you know, but has made some pretty ordinary films along the way. And this is not one, but he has made some pretty ordinary films on G.I. Jane and 1492 and all kinds of things. Well, there was one, there was some historical film. Didn't he make The Duelist back maybe even before Blade Runner? Yeah. Which was based no, on no, Joseph maybe. Conrad yeah, maybe. novel. And it, it really looked good. But I think you're right. I think uh, I have a pet theory that one of the things that did Ridley Scott in as a director was H.R. Giger. Once, once you had sets designed and aliens by H.R. Giger, he could not get away from that. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and Giger was, is Giger still a thing? I mean, he was very <laughs> big for a while. In well, I, I think I, uh, Giger is a thing until we get to the end of the alien cycle, right? And I believe the next Prometheus film or the one after that formally pulls it all together with the alien uh, cycle of films. So, anyway. Anyway, biomechanicals are... So 80s. It's true. Back before you know, you, you took off to Virginia in search of you know, sort of uh, lecturing uh, money. We were talking about possible topics for the podcast, and we we came up with one which maybe we can fit into the rest of this episode. That's that's centered around one of the other major jobs that you've been doing. Because I mean, as everybody listening to the podcast knows, you edited and compiled uh, the Library of America's. Uh, science fiction novels of the 50s set and you have been working mm. on the science fiction novels of the 60s set and I assume sometime in the next three, six months there will be a major announcement about that telling everybody about all the variables of that and right. as, a, as a, a thought experiment our friend Gardner Dozois on his Facebook page asked people to name uh, science, you know, Library of America type books for the 70s and the 80s and the 90s right Right. Following and not, the same rules that uh, the volumes have followed so far. In other words, they had to be American authors. Yeah, there'd be American authors. There would probably be two volumes. Uh, oh. There would probably be six or eight or nine novels, just as there was in the 50s set, and just as presumably there will be in the 60s set. Um, that, that kind of a thing. And we could all sit there and go through the thought experience. It's kind of fun. It's the kind of thing you do in the mm. bar. And you and I touched on this, and you suggested a topic... And, and it's because I was pulled up, and I'll tell you what I was pulled up about in a second. Uh -huh. The topic was this. Does it stand up, or are we just kidding ourselves? Does that work from the past stand up as well as we think it does, or is it not really all that good? One of the questions asked was it, that we had for ourselves was, is The Cold Equations actually a great short story? Not a great science fiction short story, but a great short story. And the book that we turned on because when people were talking about the 80s mm. everybody seemed to agree in this discussion online that various books would have to go into an 80s set and i'm not trying to preempt any possible 80s set you may or may not ever edit based but one of the books they named was like was uh orson scott card's ender's game which is mm. a classic of military science fiction which does sit in an evolutionary path from uh starship troopers to uh the Forever War, to Ender's Game, to mm. whatever else, yeah? Uh, Ancillary Mercury, just whatever. Mm. And when I said to you, well, it seems to me, actually, a bit of a no-brainer that Ender's Game would actually go into a Library of America volume, you said to me, no. I don't think it would. Um, and just as a parenthesis, so people don't wonder, the, the, the reason we are not announcing the 60s titles is because we don't have permissions on all of them yet, so we don't know what they are. Yeah, it's still, it's still, it's still my, my change, yeah. My, my argument with Ender's Game is I don't think it's had much influence. Uh, I think it's become enormously popular as a kind of one-off. Uh, it's a different kind of novel. It's one I have problems with, 
But it's a one-off in the same way that back in the 60s, Flower, Flowers for Algernon was a one-off. Uh, There's not a lot of impact in the field. People weren't trying to write psychological things. I think Ender's Game took a, took a lot of pages from Starship Troopers. Not the combat stuff, but the stuff that so much of both novels are actually about going to school or about training. You go back and look at Starship Troopers, the novel, and it's amazing how much of it is about this course in history and philosophy and political science that, uh, that Heinlein wants to lecture you about. And at the end, you have this, uh, you, uh, adults can't be trusted because, uh, they, you know, you have all kinds of moral problems. You can commit genocide, but it's okay, it wasn't my fault. I didn't know what I was doing. I was only a kid. It was a grown-up who made me do it and this sort of thing. And then you had an enormous influence. The book had enormous influence on later Orson Scott Card novels. Who else has been influenced by it? I don't know. I've been trying to think about it. I mean, it, it, it probably you know, somebody, maybe somebody out there who, who's better read than I am in the science fiction of the tw- 2000s and 2010s, because somewhere around there I started paying far more attention to short mm-hmm. fiction than novels, unfortunately, might be able to come up with some kind of path of influence. But I mean, one of the arguments was, here's the first book that ever won the Hugo and the Nebula for Best Novel, right? right. Now you might say, well, the Library of America doesn't care about that. But when you look at, standout science fiction novels it appears to be and now at some point back in the 2000s the modern library did a top 100 novels of all time and right. what, while they, they published a popular list and a list put together by their editorial board of directors or something and certainly Ender's Game did not feature on the editorial board of directors list but it did appear on the, on the popular list so you're saying mm-hmm. that popularity uh sheer scale i mean like it, it won major awards it's so it's, it is probably one of the top two or three or four best-selling science fiction novels of the last quarter century yeah, it's enormously popular yeah i that, have no problem with that. that but that doesn't push it into this kind of place no i don't think so uh, popularity is there are two issues here one is i mean if you want to talk about um basically if you want to deal with some of the moral issues that are dealt with in the Ender novels, I would I would recommend Greg Bear's Forge of God and Anvil of Stars, which deals with some of the same themes. The Earth is wiped out. We're going to get vengeance on the he calls See, I, the killers. I, I mentioned that. I think the Forge of God's a dreadful novel, and the Anvil of Stars is a terrific novel. Well, okay, well, the Anvil of Stars is the one that makes it work. Yeah, uh, but, uh, the Anvil of Stars is much more. But the, my point is, is is that I think that's a. It, it's not nearly as popular even now. I think it's a more substantial novel that deals with the same themes. But when you mention something like The Cold Equations and what I would mention about Ender's Game, and this issue came up and has come up with the Library of America editors uh, more than once, they're not looking at these stories in the context of short stories. It came up with, um, with uh, Peter Straub's American Fantastic Tales. They're looking at these stories in the context of American literature so that when you ask is the cold equations historically important to science fiction? Of course it is. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a touch point. Is it defensible in terms of American literature, in terms of short stories? Absolutely not. It's manipulative. It's set up to get the result that it wants. It's not fundamentally an honest short story. And I think Ender's Game is manipulative in the same way. I think it has uh, all kinds of uh, appeals to, to readers. I think it has the appeal of a uh, of, of, of kind of um, 
you're not responsible for your actions kind of attitude, which is probably going too far. Okay. It's a terrific story. I start off by saying Card is a terrific storyteller. He has your turning pages. I actually liked it when I read it until I started thinking about it a little bit. But as a, as a novel, as a designed novel, the moral structure of it doesn't hold up very well if you look at it just as literature. And what we were looking at in terms of this debate that, that Gardner started, if you start looking at these questions, it's not what are the classics or what are the most popular works of science fiction. Is it If you don't know anything about science fiction, is this going to hold up as a short story or a novel? Yeah. I mean, that, okay. So you're saying that was your primary, well, one of your primary questions, because I mean, I could see based on other criteria that have been mentioned off, off, you know, off microphone to me that there would be an enormous attraction to a work like Ender's Game just because of its very popularity. Um, I think there's, there's interest in that, but I don't think it's necessarily attraction. I mean, one of the things that uh, I mean, th- this is a library. It's, it's not trying to define a canon, uh, as I've said before, but it's trying to recognize a canon. Uh, so it's going to include uh, some. Let me put it this way: it, it'll include. They have volumes on uh, Dash L. Hammett and Raymond Chandler, and they've got a volume coming up on Ross McDonald. They don't have, and I don't think they're going to have a volume on Mickey Spillane, who was far more popular than any of those writers. But would they have a volume? All sort of allowing for you know, practicalities of length and everything else and rights and all those other things, setting those aside, say a Heinlein volume. Um, I actually talked to them once about doing the Heinlein juveniles, and it just turned out to be um, an, another complicated situation with rights and various other things, and the fact that there are a lot of them. Uh, they will be doing other individual author science fiction volumes. I know that, and again, I'm not supposed to say no, who they are, right. but that become apparent fairly quickly. They're interested in, in, in getting into science fiction. There are authors who are clearly substantial authors in the field by any standards of American literature. Um, in Heinlein's case, I think you can find enough works that demonstrate that importance, uh, but not all of his works do. But are, but are they work, important works of American literature, or are they important works of American science fiction? That's the question. That's why I think it's a fascinating question. I think that... Um, you, 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 you can't really uh, say that all the Philip K. Dick novels in the two or three volumes they published of Philip K. Dick, they're not all American classics. No, they look uh, like they're in the Library of America making money. Uh, they're making money, but they were there, and I don't know how much Jonathan Lethem had to do with that mm. happening in the first place, but there's also a major American writer there. Uh, is Heinlein a major American writer from the perspective of American literature? I think he is. I think Le Guin is. I think... I don't think Asimov is, frankly. Okay. I don't think... I mean, as much as I... I grew up liking Asimov a lot better than Heinlein. Well, actually, here's Asimov. a question for you, Gary, since you are our official sort of contact in, into this world. Are there any pre-1960s writers of science fiction who fall into this sort of cat, cat, category of being eligible for a standalone volume? Because when you think about... Uh, Le Guin, when you think about Delaney, when you think about Silverberg, when you think about a couple other people who really could carry a a, 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 a solo volume, you, you then go back a decade and you kind of go, well, okay, Heinlein, because, I mean, for all that I think it's a flawed book, I think Stranger in a Strange Land is a significantly, imp- a sufficiently important book mm-hmm. that it could definitely uh, be included, and 
practically in terms of practicality actually isn't as stupidly long as modern books are so actually isn't that surprising but then you 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 go back and say well well, hang on who are the others who are like you know from from pre the pre-1960 who would carry that or is it the truth that it was just a bit too pulpy no i think that there are some writers who unfortunately are fading away in a way that heinlein hasn't faded away that possibly could could work that way, and I think one of them, for example, is Blish. I think Blish is, by by today's standards, he's a tremendously underappreciated writer. Yeah, and he was doing sophisticated literary things. He was he was making he was playing Joycean games in common time. He was doing historical fiction. He was all over the map, and he was uh, uh, he was not the best prose stylist in the world, but he was a decent writer. And his uh, his short fiction is just kind of stunning. I think that. Now, we're talking about American writers, so we can't talk about people like Brunner and Clark and that sort of Sure. But, but yeah, who else besides Blish? Uh, they're the one-shot writers. They're the people I would love to have had in the 50s volume, except they didn't have any novels in the 50s, and what they had turned out to be story collections like Zena Henderson. Yeah. Um, C.L. Moore. They're, they're, the problem with science fiction writers, I think, and the problem is equally true of mystery writers, is that so many of them are making a living. Um, doing what they needed to do. So Lee Brackett, um, a couple of good novels, a few good short stories, and a lot of really good pulp stories, but they were pulp stories before they were Lee Brackett stories. C.L. Moore, uh, I was looking at um, No Woman Born, which is an amazingly prescient story in terms of gender relationships. Absolutely. Uh, And you start looking at C.L. Moore's collected stories and her handful of novels, that's a very strong career uh, that, like Blish, I don't think is being paid much attention to these days. Yeah. Um, what about Damon Knight? I don't. You know, Damon Knight's fiction I never really appealed to me that much. There were some short stories. There was A for Anything, which was a very good novel. Uh, I'm not. Subs- I'm not sure there's a substantial body of work there. Who do you think? I guess in an American context, because I can think of one or two other people, stands as the writer who most needs to be presented to modern readers so that they're not lost. You mean of current writers? No, 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 no. Of, of uh, fr- from the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. Because, I mean, Le Guin's not going to be lost, right? Dick, Dick Le Guin's Le- not going to be lost. Kim Stanley Robinson is not going to be lost. Heinlein is not going to be lost. Um, and again, we're talking not just among science fiction readers who all have yeah, their yeah. favorites. And my guess is that um, so Joanna Russ isn't going to be lost because she's kind of making it into the mainstream. I'm not sure Cory Brainer Smith is known to anybody outside the science fiction field. I'm not sure that Lafferty is known to anybody outside the field. I doubt that um, Aldous Budras is known to anybody. Well, see, I, see, here's the thing. I, I have a great belief in. Uh, Writers who've got like a tentpole career or, whatever, or, or creation that will mm. save them. Like, Liber will always be saved by Faffer and the Grey Mouser, right? right. Moorcock will always be saved by Elric. Um, Robert E. Howard will always be saved by Conan. Right, that's good. And, and then there are some like slight corollaries. There's like oddballs who will always have enough, just enough passionate people to keep them around the periphery. So I don't see Avram Davidson or R.A. Lafferty being forgotten. Because they're quirky, they're eccentric, they appeal to particular kinds of readers, and those readers are enough, just enough, to keep them 
alive. I, th- I think it's quite likely that in a quarter of a century, Davidson and Lafferty and Smith will still be in print. I mean, if Nesva continues to exist, they will keep Smith in print anyway. And they sold a lot of that. But my point is, if you look at, 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 and Davidson and Lafferty are two people I've had experience with. If you introduce them to people who are not necessarily interested in science fiction, they can be stunning discoveries. Actually, I put Paul Leinbarger or Cordwainer Smith in the same thing. Yeah. In other words, you're right. These have little kind of niche cult followings, but that's also the sort of thing where if they get a chance at a breakout, if they get a chance of being exposed to a wider audience, which there may be a chance now, because I mean, it's, the Library of America isn't the only thing in this game, for example. There's a New York, let's see, um, the New York Review of Books Yes, yeah. Robert Sheckley. They did indeed, and obviously there's a modern library and you know, several other kinds of semi-canonical or canonical publishers. Yeah, to a broader audience, and 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 more usefully than say say Folio, who really are a limited edition publisher. Um, right, exactly. I have a writer in mind, so I'm interested that he hasn't come up. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if I were doing this on an international scale, I might have mentioned John Brunner who was a much more prolific writer than we think and actually didn't just write two or three books. Uh, but the, one, of the, one of the writers who is staring this in the face is Thomas Dish. He doesn't, have a te- he doesn't particularly have a, a, a tentpole creation that appeals to the world at large. He's not quirky and eccentric. He could disappear off, and yet he was one of the finest writers of the 60s and 70s. And he was also, for a while, a pretty commercial writer with his horror novels. Um, um. So he and he was also, for that matter, a well-respected poet under the name Tom Dish. Yeah. So there was a sense in which I was talking to, I was talking to John Clute about this, and we were talking about, obviously, we were talking about the '60s, and we were thinking, okay, you know, if you're looking at, if you were looking at modernism in the 1920s, and you had Pound and Eliot and, and, and maybe Stein, and if you look at science fiction in the '60s, you pretty much got Dish and and Zelazny and Russ as you know, as, as something like the equivalent. You can't talk about that genre in that decade without talking about those writers in any meaningful way. Of course you've got Stranger in a Strange Land, but Stranger in a Strange Land was Heinlein Phase 3. It wasn't discovering Heinlein. It wasn't something terribly new. And Dish was clearly uh, one of those tentpoles, and he clearly needs to be, you know, uh, resurrected as well. And while we were talking about him, uh, going back to the 50s, I thought of another writer who who had a small output, but so much of it was high quality that he needs to break out still, is Alfred Bester. Uh, I think one of the problems is that science fiction readers remember the last couple of novels that just were phony dreadful. Basically. They're dreadful. I mean, dreadful. He, he, come on. He had two great novels and a short story collection. In fact, you could do, if, if um, there wasn't a Bester novel in uh, the science fiction novels of the 50s, you could quite easily have done a selected writings book for, of Bester's. Yeah, that would be the two novels and a few short stories. A half dozen classic short stories. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a lot, but we're not talking about people who are terribly prolific. And Dish was not that prolific either in terms of science fiction. As we say, he, he, turned, he wrote a gothic novel under, I forget the pseudonym he used. Um, it was the name of a... It was the name of an actual gothic novelist, I think. Hmm. Um, but... Um, but then he wrote the the, the, the two horror novels that uh, I don't know if and I read I read one of them. The prose is is stunning. I mean, he is still a solid writer in anything he does. Yeah. But when you go back to Camp Concentration and the Genocides and Three Thirty Four, uh, you've got some you know classic works. Absolutely. So um, 
I guess to try and circle back within this particular topic, which mm. is, does it stand up or are we just kidding ourselves? How much of the science fiction canon do you think really does stand up? I think one of the things that's fascinating is when you start talking, when you start getting out of our little uh, bubble, basically, and talking to people uh, who maybe haven't read much science fiction, and we've talked about entry-level science fiction. I don't think, I, I think, I think a lot of it stands up. I think a surprising amount of it does stands up, in fact. But it may not be always the things that you expect. I don't think that most, I don't think the cold equation stands up particularly well as a story. I think if you go back to the classic Heinlein, uh, I mean the very early Heinlein of Lifeline and the Roads Must Roll, uh, they look terribly, terribly contrived. Uh, All You Zombies is a very ingenious puzzle, but as a story, it's an ingenious puzzle. Uh, Well, can we unpack an earlier statement of of yours in this uh, topic? You said that the 50s were the golden age of the science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. Right. Are you saying that you think the 50s were a better decade for science fiction novels than the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s? Okay, maybe it's the Bronze Age of the science fiction novel. Because, uh, I mean, I can think of great novels from all of those decades. The Golden Age idea came from this. Uh, and it's, I mean, the, the, the Golden Age is 12. We know that cliche and that sort of thing. But to some extent, the form of the science fiction short story was forged during the 40s. It was forged during the Campbell era, though. The idea of, 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 of short stories that would, be, uh, that would embed the future. So to some extent... There were good science fiction short stories before that, obviously. Uh, but it was a blossoming of the short story form. The 50s, simply by market forces, there was a market for science fiction novels. You could write a science fiction novel as a novel. You wouldn't have to necessarily worry about serializing it. And so the idea that, that you could structure something as a novel was something that really kind of, I think, got cemented in the 50s. So, so my argument of, about the 50s is that that's when the science fiction novel in America got invented. Sure. And, you know, there have been, been Wells and Barron and people like well, that. Well, it went through its primary so, evolution, certainly, yes, without a doubt. Exactly. So it doesn't mean that they produced... Did the 50, were, were the science fiction novels of the 50s better than those of the 60s or the 70s or the 80s? Of course not. Well, I mean, you say of course not, but on this very podcast, Barry Malsberg basically put forward that, that argument, didn't he? Uh, I think he did, and I think that he has possibly a vested interest in that as well, uh, being part of that uh, p- part of that generation. I think that the kind of science fiction that Barry was talking about, if you look at the evolution of science fiction from the Campbell 40s and from the pulps uh, of the 30s and 40s, because we have to keep in mind the planet stories was there and amazing was there throughout the 40s. If you look at that evolution, the 50s was the flowering of that kind of science fiction. The 50s probably produced the best novels that you could produce out of a space opera tradition. You can't take the ma- you can't take those materials and write a better novel than The Stars My Destination. Um, and with the 60s, you started realizing, okay, we don't have to use just those materials anymore. In a sense, we're back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast with people like Lottie Tidar and, and, and Nalo Hopkinson and Nidia Okorafor. The whole history of science fiction is picking up more and more and more influences. Uh, yeah, and then deciding and, which ones you set aside and all that kind of varied thing. materials. So yeah, the sixties were more varied and more inventive and more literary than the fifties were. The seventies were, well, maybe not that interesting. If you look at some of uh, 
Bruce Sterling's Truth editorials, he said the science fiction went to sleep during the 70s. But see, which uh, is I never buy that. I had a, a terrific discussion uh, a year ago, maybe, uh, with Stan Robinson, and he was talking about the 80s as that dreadful decade, I think it was. I don't want to sort of put words in his mouth. And, how it was, and I'm going like, but I thought it was one of the best de- decades ever. I mean, it was full of fantastic fiction, terrific novels, great short stories. How could you possibly say the 80s was anything other than the melting pot in which 21st century science fiction evolved? That's my point. You can't look at a decade from the end of the decade. Uh, what what you're saying about the 80s is um, basically what a, a lot of us would say about the 70s. And yet Sterling said we it's it's all dead. It's all repetitive. It's all doing you know, everything. It's uh, yeah, but but that's like judging hopeful. that's like judging popular music because you went to a Yes concert right in 1975. It's like exactly. judging it's like judging science fiction by picking up the Moton God's Eye, which is not an inherently bad novel. I'm not particularly criticizing it, but it stands as an exemplar of bestseller fiction uh, overlapping with science fiction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an attempt at taking a classic science fiction trope, First Contact, and doing it up in bestseller mode. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff like that going on. And it doesn't mean the 70s was bad. I think that Stan was probably thinking that it wasn't very interesting at the time living through it. Um, but you could say the same thing. The, the 60s, when we talk about the 60s, when we talk about Dish and Zelazny and Russ and, and, and Le Guin, we're not talking about the most popular science fiction novels of the 60s. No. Not at um, all, no. And I think the same thing will be said of, of any decade once you look back on it from a certain amount of distance. Because of the way we talk about science fiction, and by we in this case I mean very specifically you and I in the context of the 253 episodes of our podcast, do we leave ourselves open to undervaluing very popular science fiction and fantasy, which the rest of the field might still consider to be uh, important? I mean, I tend to feel, for example, that in 2015... The Killer Bees, Gregory Bear, Greg, Gregory Benford, Greg Bear, David Brin, who were preeminent in 1990, right, seem much less significant to me now. Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, who were the dominant collab- the collaborative team, you know, and and who dominated science fiction for 75 through 85 or something with their collaborations, so in terms of sales and profile. Uh, or even Scott Card. I mean, Scott Card, who from you know like 1985 through 1992 or three, is mm-hmm. selling phenomenally and is sweeping the awards. And then I've got my own theory as to what happened there, but he loses traction in that way. Are we susceptible to undervaluing those people today, you and I, in our discussions? I think we probably are. I think we probably are inevitably, and I don't. Uh, I, I think there are different kinds of problems that I have with all the authors you've mentioned. It's not the same sort of thing. It's not the kind of problems I have with, for example, Michael Crichton, yeah. who is, in my mind, a fake science fiction writer, or was. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it, that's always been, I think we've been reasonably honest on this podcast that there, there are very popular writers who are very good at what they do that one or both of us just aren't that familiar with. I mean, one of the things when I was looking at uh, Edward James's book on, on, on Lois McMaster Bougeau, which I had not realized before, is that besides Heinlein, she's the only person to win four best novel yeah. Hugos. Yeah, I knew that. maybe two novels by her. I've read. And uh, well, hey, no problem. No, no, I've read everything she's written, except for the okay. fantasies, all of science fiction. Mm-hmm. So, and she's good. 
She's she, no, she's she is very good. She's very smart. She's, she's a, a good writer. She's a compelling short storyteller, or just a compelling storyteller, and is actually doing something interesting, you know, uh, in right. her work. It's not ju- sort of just something you could casually dismiss in some kind of context. It's important stuff. I look at say David Brin, who mm. in the last decade has written much less and has been doing other things, but you know. In 1985, 86, 87, 88, 89, around then, he was the thing. Like, he was the business, right? I mean, Star Tide Rising came out, The Uplift War came out, Earth came out, those books. And he was huge. He was winning awards. He seemed like... Now he feels like a footnote to me. Uh, I think think the novels that made his reputation are ones that are not read much anymore. I don't think anybody reads Star Tide Rising anymore. Mm. Well, see, we don't. I mean, and we're not everybody. That that's the thing that I fi- find hard to grasp. It's I'll get a feel for. It's like I kind of feel like Greg Bear. His last major novel was City on the Le- on the Edge of Forever, and really his best oh, work. That's not the title. No, the City topic. on the something. You know the one I mean? Because no, yeah, that, that's a, that's the Ellison uh, Star it's Trek City episode. City at the end of time. Although. City at the end of time. City, City at the time was his last major novel, it seems to me, and really it was the stuff back around the time of Slant and you know that kind of stuff that were real and Queen of Angels, which are really his core achievements. But it kind of feels yeah. like we're in the later years of Greg Bear, uh, and the same for Benford for various reasons. Um, mm. And I look back and I wonder whether you know, Niven and Purnell were ever as influential as they felt they were at the time, though Niven's short body of short work I think is pretty pretty significant. Um. I'd be curious just to know who's still reading Ringworld, or if you go, um, because it's it just it just was such a mind blowing thing at the time, uh, and you know within a year or so we had Bob Shaw doing Orbitsville, and now Dyson Spheres are pretty much a dime a dozen in science fiction, uh, so maybe that and, and if you go back and look, these turn out to be arenas for adventure stories largely anyway, because I was. One of these lectures, I was talking about these giant, the big dumb objects, the rendezvous with Rama, the ring world, the Orbitsville stuff. Um, and I don't think that kind of thing works on our imagination anymore because it's just, we've had too much of it. The one person who can still bring off that kind of science fiction, I think, is probably Stephen Baxter. Okay. Okay. See, I was going to say something, and I realized one of the problems with, with an assessing this kind of thing, making assessment of this question, is that publishing has changed so much at the same time. I mean, uh, you know, so I was going to say that, you know, maybe influence can be, can be assessed or this question can be answered by looking and saying, well, is a book still in print outside of a masterpieces or retrospective series? Right. So, for example, Ringworld, is it available in a common commercial edition? And then you're going, well, hang on, we live in an era where the mass market paperback, where so much of science fiction evolved and happened, right. has been wiped out. So Pretty much. That's it's actually a reasonable thing for it to be in those kind of places. I mean, certainly, Ringworld, I mean, is it still being read today? It's still in print, in fresh editions that just came out. Mm-hmm. So it's still being read, I think it's fair to say. Whereas maybe To Your Scattered Bodies Go may not be being read, you know, by Philip Jose Farmer. Right. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, I mean, Joanna Russ has been rescued from oblivion over the last five years or so. You know, Probably. I mean, I, I think she was headed for utter oblivion the way things were looking she was going to be a, f- a footnote um, and I'm very I think that it's a good thing that she has been uh, and, and she's been rescued by people who are committed to feminist science fiction women in science fiction women's writing well, a, footnote to foot, a footnote to that footnote though uh, Russ has never gone away in the terms of those of us who are like 
professional science fiction critics and sure. scholars. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, critic and reviewer and essayist. Yeah, yeah, but and that stuff. Always part of the dialogue. Yes, but when it comes to professional critics and academics of science fiction, if you booked a table at McDonald's, you'd still have an empty seat. There's only a few of you, You're right? You're probably right. You're probably right about that. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's got it's got to be a, a broader group than that to actually have some lasting, you know, sort of impact. It's just like it will be interesting in ten years' time to see where Harlan Ellison is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, a, a question still to be answered, though he's still very much, you know, at the forefront of our minds. I mean, I don't have an answer to this question, and partly because I, I don't devote t- the, the time to go back and, you know, pick it up. And the, the question that flows through my mind about this, and it's relevant, I want to put it to you, is, see, I ask myself, one thing I say, if, if a 1967 pop song holds up, the way it holds up is it shows up in a playlist and my kid doesn't notice it's old. Yeah. Is that the um, the, the the criteria that we should apply to to books and stories that if you found one of these books on a bookshelf it wouldn't seem old hmm well, you, you, you're talking about books and I was thinking when you were talking about about Harlan Ellison about short stories because so, I think there's some that don't I think there's one of the things that strikes me as interesting about some of these authors we're talking about whether or not they're still popular goes back to our question of what if you show them to somebody who's simply interested in American literature or simply interested in the short story as an art form. Um, and I've had experience um, a little bit with both of those. Uh, if, if you, uh, Harlan Ellison is still alive and still functioning and is, is, is still writing, in fact. But he can still go back and find a story that is completely indefensible in terms of its understanding of computer technology or its uh, or the, the rational, rationality behind its dystopia. If you go back and look at I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream or Repent Harlequin said that, and show that to a new reader, and I've done this, people in their teens today, they can still be blown away by it, even as they understand that the computer stuff doesn't work anymore. If you show Silverberg's dying inside to a contemporary reader, it's still absolutely stunning as a novel. Is hard science fiction always more susceptible to this because it's focused on technology? Very possibly. I mean, it's it's very difficult, and I don't teach my science fiction course as often as I'd like to. But it's very it would be it's very difficult to teach the roads must roll these days without without your students giggling at it. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, okay. People recognize all the iRobot stories as being really clever logical puzzles, but not real stories and. The closest thing you have to a human character in any of them is Susan Calvin, who isn't that complete a character. The example that always comes to my mind, oddly enough about this, is not a science fiction novel or a science fiction short story. The example that comes to my mind is The Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club is dated not because of its music, not because of its Mm. visual style, but because of technology. Because they put five five kids or six kids in a library room for detention on a Saturday morning and they didn't have phones. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're only isolated. I mean, no kid put into detention would remain isolated the way they remain isolated in the 21st century. That's absolutely true, but does that make it dated or does that simply make it a historical piece? Well, this is one of those great things and we have touched on this to no great answer and that's probably why we will segue to a close in a moment. But, there is a diff- there is a, a weird thing that happens, I believe, with a with a text, and that is it goes from being uh, current to being dated to being period. 
And the good mm-hmm. ones are the ones that make the transition from dated to period. The bad ones just stay dated. I think you're right. I mean, because if you go back and look at some classic American books, for example, uh, which if you don't know, I bet Marianne does, The Little House on the Prairie book. Sure, yeah. yeah. They're historical novels now. Yes, they, they are. They were barely historical novels when they were written. Yeah. Uh, but people still seem to love them for that same reason. And as far as the modern technology, yeah, it changes the way you write things, but it doesn't invalidate the earlier things you were writing. I read an interview today with R.L. Stein, and apparently, astonishingly enough, the first Goosebumps movie is coming out mm-hmm. with a character, uh, Jack Black, pay, playing R.L. Stein. And Stein was saying that, you know, any number of these, I don't know how many dozens or scores of novels he wrote in the Goosebumps and Fear Street series, all of his plots would have just died away if the kids had had cell phones. You yeah. know, you can't be getting mysterious, threatening phone calls if you've got a caller ID on your, uh, on your cell phone. So the plot just ends right there. But does that mean that his pre-cell phone horror novels are not going to appeal to kids? I don't think uh, I, I, I guess maybe the issue, though, is it depends how central to the, the, the work it is. So, you know, if you write, I mean, you're saying uh, The Roads must, must Roll, which is basically about escalators or moving walkways, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. That falls to pieces because it looks ridiculous now. Mm-hmm. You know, if you filmed it, it would, be, it would seem ridiculous. And probably a bunch of the technology-based pulp science fiction of the 40s, 50s, and 60s would do the same. The yeah. reason Cordwainer Smith wouldn't, because it's just eccentric madness and it's got nothing to do with technology at all. Right. There's, a, there's an implied technology. Although one of the odd things, and I think this is something I, I keep, I didn't talk about this in the lectures, I wish I had. Sometimes somebody comes off with this completely off-the-wall uh, flight of imagination ends up being more tech- technologically savvy than somebody who had thought it through. I mean, the, the burning of the brain is a, cor- is, is a Cord Wiener Smith story in which all the passengers on the starship believe they're wandering around the lawns of Mount Vernon Estate, of George Washington's estate. And it's, it's just, it must have struck people as being just utterly off the wall. And now people are saying, oh, yeah, they're in a VR environment in the spaceship. Of course, that makes lots of sense. Uh, well, it makes yes. more sense now than it did when he wrote it. Everything to do with science fiction makes more sense now, Gary. We live in a science fictional world. And on that note, having run nearly 20 minutes over our usual happy hour, because, you see, we had lots to talk about. We haven't spoken for a while. We haven't, We've been, we haven't talked enough to each other lately is what the problem is. I think that's it. So it's good to, to get back and have a bit of a chat, touch base, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with the run-up to our live podcast at World Fantasy Convention, probably. That's still a probable, but I think we're going to do a live. Certainly we'll do something more. We'll do, yes. Uh, and then, of course, with our, our summer hiatus coming or our Christmas hiatus coming. So we've got to get a few episodes in so we can get our 52 out. Yeah, we, we have to explain that for you, the summer hiatus is the winter hiatus in pretty much the rest of the planet. No, that's not true. You darn Americans keep doing that. It's like you turn around and say... Our listeners in Patagonia... And South Africa, I'm sure, are on the same schedule you are. I understand. That, that, you know, this, this, this is where you can turn around and once again sort of say, oh, I keep forgetting that you people use Celsius instead of Fahrenheit when you're the only people left who do. We have mile markers on our highways to kilometers. Is, is there something hilarious that the United States is the one place that still uses imperial measurement? It's, it's kind of amazing. It really is. <laughs> on that cheery note, on that cheery note, we should wind up. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I will talk to you next and week. We will talk again next week at this time. Yes. And we have some 
interesting guests coming up within the next couple of weeks. For we do. All sorts of people on the, on the run-up to yes. uh, our World Fantasy Fund. So until then, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Okay. We remain now, as always, the Cooch Street Podcast. <laughs>